This evening, we're going to be looking at Psalm 118. I'm going to read the entire uh, 29 verses of this psalm, and then I'll make some uh, comments and then dig right in to the psalm. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 511. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tent of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind a festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And again, Lord, we ask that as we look at this particular passage, you would open our eyes to the magnificence of our Lord, that you would grow us in our zeal and our love for him. You've called us to love you with all our heart, our mind, and our soul. What better way than for you to magnify our Lord before our eyes even now as we look at this passage. So would you do this for your praise and for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, we close out uh, our sermon series on the Messianic Psalms by looking at what's broadly held to be the last of such psalms. It's also the last of what's referred to as the Hallel Psalms, the, the word Hallel meaning praise. Uh, so it is a psalm of praise and thanksgiving belonging to a corpus which begins uh, with Psalm 113. Now, regarding the messianic aspects of, of this psalm, it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. 
all four gospels writers wrote of this particular, quoted rather, this particular psalm, which makes it literally the only psalm that can, where such a claim can be made. Uh, this evening, I'm going to address the entire psalm, but the majority of our time will be spent dealing with its messianic context. Uh, well, you know, we've come to that time of the year when folks are prone to make New Year's resolution, lose weight, read more. I can go on and on for quite some time listing all, all sorts of resolutions, but instead, I'd like to suggest that it might be a little more profitable for us as Christians to focus on embracing who we are, not just in the new year, but perpetually. I believe doing so will in fact bring about the balance that we always seem to be striving for in our daily living, hence resolutions. So inevitably, based on what I just said, the question that will come to mind is, who are we? Or questions, what are we? What are you asserting, Dean? My answer to these questions first, must first come in the form of another question, one that all of us are well aware of in this church. It comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So based on the scriptural text that gave rise to that Westminster affirmation, I submit to you that one of the chief identifiers of a true Christian, what we should be striving to be, is a worshiper. He or she, we, were created to that end, and not just for particular moments in time, but our entire existence, all that we're about should be worshiping God, being sacrifices for, towards our God. I think of Eric Liddell, whose life story was captured in the movie Chariots of Fire. The quote, when I run, I feel, remember he was a great track and field athlete, gave up the 100 and ran the 400 and still won. And so he, he is quoted, arguably, as saying, when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's often attributed to him. His life was a true example of what it meant to be truly devoted to God, to love him with all one's heart, mind, and soul. His steps were ordered by the Lord because he was first and foremost a worshiper of God, a person who, whose entire existence was built on the desire to fulfill, to glorify God, and to enjoy him. So the question then is how can we move in that direction, and, and not just as a New Year's resolution, but uh, in recognition of the fact that that is who we are, that God created us to be worshipers. With those questions in mind, and again, with an ultimate goal of highlighting the messianic context of this text, I'm going to address this passage under three overarching headings. First, our call to worship, our cause for worship and the center of our worship. So first, real short, our call to worship. The psalm begins and ends with the people of God being called to pay homage, that is to bestow public honor or respect. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, we hear in verse one. Let Israel say, verse two, let the house of Aaron say, verse three, and let those who fear the Lord say, verse four, it's a comprehensive call for those who have been graced with the received revelation of God. 
In its original context, it's first to Israel, then to those in religious leadership, Aaron, the household of Aaron, then to the Gentiles. In our day, that would be uh, comprehensively all those who have had the light of Jesus Christ shed abroad in their hearts, having been regenerated and illumined by the Holy Spirit. The end of the passage reinforces, reinforces this noting, you are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. That's verse 28. And I will extol you, verse 28. And oh, give thanks to the Lord. It ends how it started. That's verse 29. So that's our first heading, our call to worship. Oh, come and worship him. Give thanks to him. And why? Our second heading, our cause for worship. I've already communicated the first cause or reason, because he has revealed himself to us. Thus, we immediately know two things. He is good, and his love endures forever. We are assured that we are his, not because of what we do, but because of what he did. To be good in this context is to be perfect in every way, both in who he is and and what he does. Remember what Jesus said When the rich ruler said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good being the operative word that Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good, absent of sin, perfect in every way. No one is good except God alone. Of course, Jesus knew who he was, but he was just moving the young man's mind towards a place of contemplation. A comprehensive reading of scripture reveals with absolute clarity that God is absolutely good, perfect in all his ways and attributes, perfect in who he is and what he does. And here the psalmist goes about developing that very fact for us by recounting the ways the steadfast love that was bestowed upon him manifested itself in God's actions on our behalf. The writer's reflection of his personal experience revealed several reasons why the Lord praises, why the Lord's praises should always be in our mouths. In verse 5 through 7, he is revealed to be our helper in times of need. He writes, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. As a result of this experiential knowledge, he can go on to say, the Lord is on my side I will not fear. What can man do to me? This puts us in remembrance of Jesus' word, in words in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The psalmist has been graced with this understanding, as those of us who are in Christ should be, and thus from verses 7 through 18 He can go on to experientially speak of God's help, his enabling, his rescue, and even discipline within the context of his enduring love. His proverbial coffers, the strong boxes of his heart, are filled with the knowledge of God's goodness. And thus his possession of a heart that calls his people, calls us to give thanks Is that where you are in your personal walk with the Lord? Have you recognized that God has been good to you in the midst of all things? 
And if you suffer tremendously on the side of life, physically or otherwise, do you realize that the very fact that you are Christ means that one day you will have no such infirmities? You will be joined to God while others will be separated from him eternally. That in itself is hell. So our coffers should be full. As a result of his coffers being filled and his acknowledgement of that fact, the writer puts forth a request in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now the gates of righteousness here uh, to its original audience would have been the gates of the temple or sanctuary. But to us it is more. Thus we have been given plenty of reasons to praise our God. But I will submit to you that they are, uh, they are not the center of it all. For you see, being delivered from physical harm, all the things you saw here that he talked about, he was delivered from and stuff like that. Being delivered from physical harm is good. Being exposed to God's goodness is good. But both those things can be a product of common grace. There are many of the people who walked in the wilderness of God who were freed from the physical bondage of Egypt Yet they fell because they did not have faith in God. And ultimately it was proven that they were not of God. So you see, you can enjoy all kinds of good things in life. If you're an American, you can definitely enjoy all kinds of good things in life here in America. But all of it can be common grace. All of it. And so none of that is the true and ultimate cause for our rejoicing. None of that is the true and ultimate cause for our worship, the true and ultimate cause and center of our worship is the revelation of Christ and Jesus Christ himself. Let remind you, let me remind you that in John 10, 9, Jesus said concerning this wording of gate that you saw in Psalm 118, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find a pasture. Now the word door in that verse is translated as gate in several other versions of the Bible. So here you have a verse that alludes to our Lord, a statement reinforced or validated by verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall come through it. The only way to God is through Christ. You remember Pilgrim's Progress when Christian saw other people climbing over walls and stuff like that, but he was directed to go through the door and he did. And those who climbed over the wall were met with a greatly ill fate. So how will they enter? How will we enter this door? Our Lord's own word in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. The righteous by faith then are spiritually enabled to profess what they possess through the power of God. Hence the, the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can write in verse 23, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is of the Lord. And there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. That's in Acts 4. And the fact that we were chosen by God and enabled to call upon his name is a great cause for rejoicing. Sadly, there are many who have rejected that which the psalmist speaks of 
here. Hence in verse 22, the stone that the builders have rejected have become the chief cornerstone. In case you're wondering about the identity of this chief cornerstone, listen to what the apostle Peter said to the religious leaders and elders of his day in Acts 4:11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And again in 1 Peter 2:7 we hear, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is revealed by the New Testament writers is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find Jesus speaking a parable to the chief priests and the elders of the people. The parable was about a vineyard that was planted by a master who then rented it out to some tenants. Jesus went on to tell them that when the time came to harvest the fruit from the vineyard, the master sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Instead of giving them their master's fruit, however, the tenants took them and beat them, sent some of them, killed some of them, stoned the others. And Jesus then said that the master then sent some more servants, and they were met with the same exact fate. So then finally the master said, you know what, let me send my son, for surely they will respect my son. But instead of respecting him, however, they reasoned to themselves that this is the heir. Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And so they did just that. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now let me read the last three verses of what's recorded in Matthew 21 here. Again, thinking about Psalm 118 and how it connects. Here it starts off with Jesus asking them, following this, Where therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, that is the Pharisees, the religious leaders said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Then we hear this, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. That passage goes on to say that they recognized that Jesus was speaking about them. Friends, the oracles of God were given to the people whom he called his own, Israel. They were the stewards of what he had given them, and they were to steward it according to his dictates and not their own. He was to be central, God is, was to be central to all that they were and all that they did. But that's not what happened. And by the way, that very fact was communicated when he provided the instructions on how Israel was to live when they were in the wilderness. If you remember, the tabernacle was placed in the center of them all, and the tribes were around it. And so when they looked, when they woke up, God was supposed to be center to everything they did and who they were. All the instructions were given to them. They, they didn't have to take anything by chance. They knew exactly how to live exactly how to come before God, and exactly what they were supposed to be doing. And I say to you, if they had done all that God had directed them to do, they would have been looking for the seed of the woman. 
They would have been looking for a suffering servant who descended from the line of David. They would have heard the voice of the prophets whom they killed as noted by the parable. That's who he was talking about when he said the servants were sent to them. The prophets, they killed them. They would have heard those prophets and they would not have killed them. They would not have taken part in the crucifixion of our Lord if they had indeed operated according to the dictates of the words, the oracles that they were specifically and specially given as God's people. They built their own foundation, a foundation based on works righteousness. They took the word of God and they added to it and they took away from it. And then when the God himself, when God revealed himself, they rejected him because they had built their own foundation. And so that's what you see there in the psalm when it talks about building, uh, rejecting that cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. They rejected the Lord God, Jesus Christ, and sought to build their own kingdom. Now, if Jesus' word again sounds familiar, that's because it was, di- it was a direct quote of verses 22 and 23 of our text. Now, this engagement with the religious re- leaders as recorded in Matthew 21 took place the day after one of the most significant events in scripture, the triumphal entry. Yes, we call it Psalm uh, Palm Sunday, and, and which, by the way, is also recorded right here in, 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 in verse or Psalm 118. Look at verse 24. It's, it reads, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, this, we hear this all the time. We even, you know, we hear this and we think, we say it concerning Sunday. We say it concerning days that, you know, people say. And and it's true to some degree when we say that. But in the context of this passage, in the context of prophetically how this is laid out, something you might be asking, how you ask do you know this verse, is alluding to the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. Because that's, The argument that I'm making here. And the answer is, well, because all four gospel writers record some or all of verse 25 and 26 in their account of that event. In Matthew 21, 9, we hear, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now here it would be helpful to know and understand that the word Hosanna, when translated, actually means what we see in verse 25 of our psalm. Save us. Save us now. That is what the word Hosanna means. So you see it comes when it said, when Matthew writes this in 21.9, it comes from Psalm 18. In Mark chapter 11, verse 9 through 10 We find, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, again, save us, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Now the question might be asked, what was the mindset of the people who were saying these words? Did they really understand what they were saying? Listen to this related quote from James Montgomery Boyce in February. Rick Phillips, Pastor Rick Phillips, will be coming here. And this is the person that mentored Pastor Rick Phillips. Uh, Pastor Rick Phillips then mentored the pastor who I came here from under. 
So I guess I might be like Rick Phillips' little small cousin uncle or something like that. Anyhow, I'm just trying to get some, some claim to fame birth. Anyhow, so here's what James Montgomery wrote. When we remember that Psalm 118 is part of the Egyptian Hillel, that the Hillel was sung by Jews at the time of the Passover, and that it was Passover when Jesus entered Jerusalem and later died on Calvary, it is understandable that these words would have been in the minds of the people who greeted him as he entered the city. Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day the lambs were being taken into the Jewish homes in preparation for the sacrifice. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he came into Jerusalem at that point, on that day. This was the day, brothers and sisters, when God publicly revealed his way of salvation to the world. Therefore, it was a great cause for rejoicing. Remember, God had already given us the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God already had made a way. God wasn't sitting there wringing his hand trying to figure out anything. And remember last week when we talked about, when we looked at Isaiah 9 and the, the, the end of that passage in uh, chapter 9, verse 7, it said the, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Remember I said that the Oxford uh, definition of, of zeal had the word enthusiasm in it. And so that God was enthused with the prospect of bringing glory to his son, enthused with completing redemptive history as we know it. Now, you know in, a, in eternity there is no time, so God already knows the, the, the end from the beginning. However, we don't know that. And God takes pleasure in unfolding time, right, redemptive history, right before our eyes. And he's enthused about bringing these things to pass. And so you can imagine when Jesus then came towards Jerusalem, God already knew what Jesus was coming for. Okay? And so God, here is the culmination of something that was set in motion even before time in the covenant of redemption. But in time when God uh, said what he said to the serpent concerning the seed of the woman bruising his head. Here you now have Christ busting the gates of Jerusalem and all the people saying, save now. That is a picture before us. And it's so this is a day that the Lord has made. The Lord ordained for that day to come to pass and let us rejoice in it. We, every person should have been rejoicing if they knew what was going on. Every person that understood who Jesus was should have been rejoicing tremendously. The whole world, all those people that would be his, everything was on his shoulder right here. As it said, the government will be on his shoulder. It started right there on that triumphal entry. And so it is the day that the Lord had gave. Everyone should have rejoiced and been glad in it. The prophet spoke of that day. The angels longed to look into it and rejoice exceedingly when the storyline was played out. And the question is, how about us? Do we rejoice? In that day, do we rejoice knowing that one week later he would die, but he would be risen from the dead, that he would rise from the dead, that he would ascend 
into heaven and sit on the right hand side of the Father, that he would be all, our all in all, and that he would accomplish the work through his active obedience, through his passive obedience, every jot and tittle fulfilled on our behalf. Do we rejoice in knowing those things? So do we rejoice? You know, this is a good thing to throw out here in Palm Sunday, I guess, because again, that's that day, right? But do we rejoice in the knowledge of what our Lord has accomplished for us like that? Do we rejoice because we know even more than the people who were rejoicing then? Because by grace, we've been given even more and thus wholeheartedly embrace the joy of being living sacrifices, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is he, Christ, the center of our joy and thus the center of our worship? When we come to church, is he the center of our worship? Are we the consumers of worship so we come through the door seeking to be entertained rather than to glorify God? Be reminded that this is what the psalmist is calling us to, to worship our God, to recognize his love that endures forever. And so he even closes by saying the same thing as I said. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. I could preach a 12-hour sermon on the goodness of God. But then I might break that promise and someone might fall through the window and die like when uh, the Apostle Paul was preaching, so I won't try it. But you understand what I'm saying. We could go on and on and on. But as we have looked at the Messianic Psalms, we've seen that God, we started off talking about Luke 24, and the fact that Jesus said that all Old Testament scripture spoke of him, revealed him. And so we took the time then to go through the Psalms And in them we found our Lord and our Savior revealed in types and shadows, spoken of by the New Testament saints, revealed to us who are now on this side of the cross and have a better or clearer, I should say, vision or sight of what it is they were talking about. So my question to you is if they could have been so committed to worshiping God, then how much more should we be worshipers of God today? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you again for revealing our Lord to us. We thank you for all that he has done on our behalf. We thank you for the Psalms and for the records that we can go back and and look to again and again and again And again, oh, give thanks to you, for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. That love was demonstrated to your people of old, and it continues to be demonstrated to us today. No greater demonstration than the sacrifice that our Lord paid on our behalf. Would you cause us again to draw near to you, to magnify our Lord, 
to increase in our zeal thereby as we outgrow our understanding of what it is he has done for us. Draw us. Cause us to be witnesses in the highways and byways for you as we are filled with the joy of the Lord as our strength. As we are filled with that joy, not because of feelings, but because our minds have been illumined, our hearts have therefore been warmed, we know you are in a relationship with you and want to share that with everyone else. Would you then cause that to be the mantra of our hearts and our mouths and do all to the praise of your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.